The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. I want to read to you tonight from the book of Acts, chapter 15, and ask that you pray for us because this is not what I had planned or prepared to preach on. But in Acts chapter 15 and beginning with verse 1, it says, And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. Here we have introduced the most prevalent doctrinal error in the religious world. That being that man must do something in order to be saved. Now clearly the particular issue here is not one that we relate with in our time. The issue here was those that were still struggling under the law were saying that men must be circumcised according to the law of Moses in order to be saved. But you could substitute any action of man for that word circumcised. And we see today there are those that would say, except ye accept Christ you cannot be saved. Except you be baptized, you cannot be saved. Except you remain faithful, you cannot be saved. So this has always been a problem in the church because the Lord has so set it up that no flesh should glory in His presence. Let's see how this issue was addressed. You know, there are those that would say, well, it really doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. We're all trying to get to the same place. There's just one God, and it really shouldn't cause problems over what someone believes. Let's see if that, how, if that was how this was addressed in the New Testament. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. Now notice the terminology there. They had no small dissension and disputation with them. In other words, this was a big deal. And determined they should go up to Jerusalem and to the apostles and elders about this question. And being brought on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenix and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy unto all the brethren. And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders. And they declared all things that God had done with them, but there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them and command them to keep the law of Moses. 
And the apostles and elders came together for to consider this matter. So notice how serious this is. First of all, Paul and Barnabas were upset about this. They were greatly concerned. So concerned that that they determined that they should go to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders to address this issue. And then as he begins to describe it in uh, verse 6, it says, And the apostles and elders came together for to consider this matter, and when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, ye know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Brethren, you already know that this gospel is not just for the Jews. It's not just for those that were brought up under the law. It's not just for those that God chose to especially bless in the Old Testament. He says, brethren, you already know this, that God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples which neither we nor our fathers were able to bear. See, that's what is so often the problem in false religion, is to put a yoke, to put bondage upon the followers of that particular religion. And here he says... When you put that yoke upon them, that is the keeping of the law, or following some rules or some formula, he says you're putting a yoke upon the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we are able to bear. But we believe, how are we going to be saved? We believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, We shall be saved even as they. This is not a conditional salvation. And he's speaking of eternal salvation when he says in verse 1 that there are those that say except you be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. He's speaking about eternal salvation and there are those that say you must meet this condition. We may not have that issue today, but we have... Similar issues. Almost every religion, or let's say it this way, almost every uh, organization or church that professes to be Christian inserts some condition that man must meet in order to be saved. But Peter said, that's not what we believe. He said, we believe that we shall be saved by the grace of God, even as they. And I like to think about that in light of what Jesus said 
when he said, The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell from whence it cometh or whither it goeth. Uh, even so is every one that is born of the Spirit. If you can find out how uh, one person is born again, you know how every person is born again, and that's the exact same thing Peter says. We believe that the Gentiles will be saved by the grace of God just like the Jews are. Now this doctrine appeals to a certain kind of person. And that's what I want to look at for the rest of our time. The reason that we are so emphatic that salvation is by grace is because without that understanding, there are many of God's people that would not be able to find rest. Now let's see what the Bible says regarding this. First of all, look at Romans 12.1. Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Paul is here encouraging God's people to service. But notice that this is all based on the mercies of God. You see, if you understand what you are by nature, the only doctrine that's going to motivate you to serve God in the right way is an understanding of the mercies of God. Amen. You see, when you think about mercy and grace, that goes hand in hand. Mercy delivers you from what you deserve, and grace gives you what you don't deserve. Mercy delivers you from hell. Grace gets you into heaven. And Peter said, we believe that all of God's people, Jew or Gentile, are all saved the same way by the grace of God. And there is no real motivation to serve God with the right spirit and the right liberty, separate and apart from an understanding of God's mercies. Paul didn't say, I beseech you, brethren, based on your goodness, or I beseech you, brethren, based on your worthiness, or based on your self-esteem, or anything else. He said, I beseech you, I, I plead with you, based on the mercies of God. Is that your case? <laughs> it's certainly mine. That's the only doctrine that reaches me. That's the only thing that gives me peace. Not only would I be unfit for membership, but certainly I would never try to preach if I thought my standing before God was in any way attached to some condition met on my part. But let's notice how the Bible so expounds upon the mercy of God. 
Look at Psalm 103. Psalm 103 in verse 10. Let's begin with verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. Now I want you to see this. Notice he says, God hath not dealt with us after our sins. You ever hear someone say, I just want what I deserve. They're telling you they're blind to their depravity. It says he, uh, he's not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. We have received far less in terms of judgment than what we really, truly deserve. Listen to this. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is His mercy toward them that fear Him. You see, He's not speaking about people that have no appreciation for His mercy. He's talking about those that fear Him those that reverence Him, those that know how great of a sinner they are and how much they need His mercy. And I hope that's your experience. He said, how great is His mercy toward them that fear Him. I remember early on in my experience when I struggled so much with a sense of condemnation of sin, even though I struggled with sin and felt uh, to be so unworthy, the least of God's mercies, yet I could truly say that I feared Him. There are plenty of people out there that don't fear God. They can live as they please and it doesn't bother them. I'm not talking about or to those people. I'm talking about those that fear the Lord. If your sins bother you and you, you wrestle with them and you weep over them, that's an evidence you fear God. And you, you, you're glad salvation's by grace. You're you're glad it's not contingent upon you uh, being qualified for it. And then look at Psalms 130 and verse 3. Let's begin with verse 1. Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplication. If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? Does that relate to your experience? I hope you feel that way. 
Because if you do feel that way, you will have the right motivation to serve God. Because God, uh, the Apostle Paul pleaded with the church that they were to present their bodies a living sacrifice based on or because of their understanding and their experience with the mercies of God. And so notice here he says, Lord, if thou shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? But there is forgiveness for, with thee that thou mayest be feared. Oh, I like that. He doesn't say, well, the Lord will just overlook everything, so don't worry about it. No, he says, since there is forgiveness with thee, there's a reason to fear thee. You see, if God was a harsh taskmaster and there was no forgiveness, then fearing Him wouldn't accomplish anything. It wouldn't make any difference. But because He is a forgiving God, we can have a, a healthy, right kind of reverential respect and fear for Him. We understand that He loves us and He will, uh, he will be merciful toward us, but at the same time, as it says in the book of Hebrews, our God is a consuming fire. You can't just go out there and live any old way you want and continue to walk in open, deliberate, known rebellion against God and think everything's going to be all right. There is something to fear. Fear God and keep His commandments. This is the whole duty of man. But what I want you to see tonight is there is no motivation to serve God in an acceptable way apart from knowing how merciful he is. If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? And then listen to Lamentations 3.22. Let me turn to that where I can get a couple of other verses. Lamentations chapter 3. Notice the experience here of Jeremiah. Verse 17, he says, And thou hast removed my soul far off from peace. You know, isn't it amazing how so many verses in the, in the Bible are written in such a way that we think, well, that fits my case. Thou hast removed my soul far from peace. I forgot prosperity, and I said, My strength and my hope is perished from the Lord. Remembering mine affliction and my misery, the wormwood and the gall, my soul hath them still in remembrance and is humbled in me. This I recall to mine, therefore have I hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. They are in you every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. What's the motivation here? Is that I've got my act together. I'm finally living right. I'm fi I finally found victory. I'm finally a, a spiritual a superman or a spiritual superwoman. No. He says, it is of the Lord's mercies we're not consumed. He said, this is what I remembered and it gave me hope. Oh, I can remember when I truly myself came to see that. It was, it was a long time after I joined the church. 
that I really came to understand this, that God blessing me is not based on me performing well enough to earn His blessings. When I was able to see that, it made such a difference. And that's what he's talking about here. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. If he kept a tally, if he kept a scorecard, there would be no hope. If he should mark iniquities, oh Lord, who shall stand? He says, they are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. And then look at Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 and verse 20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. Is the purpose of the law so you can get right with God? The purpose of the law is to show you ain't right with God and you can't get right with God. He says the law entered that the offense might abound. Paul said it this way in Romans 7. We'll not turn to that, but he said, When the commandment came, sin revived and I died. That just means the law exposed my sin. You know, if there's an established speed limit on the highway you, and all the signs are removed, you're still guilty of speeding. The purpose of those signs let you know you're speeding. The law lets you know you're sinning. It's not intended for you to find a way to get right with God. No, it shows you can't get right with God. No wonder there were all the sacrifices that showed us we needed something different and better than the law. And so notice here in Romans 5, 20, more of the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Now let me explain to you some faulty thinking that I hope I can save you from because it caused a lot of problems for me. I used to think this way, yeah, as far as eternal salvation is concerned, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. I never struggled with thinking, well, I wonder if I'm a child of God. I, I never had that particular struggle. My struggle was, yes, this is true with regard to salvation. But as far as me enjoying God's blessings in this life is concerned, it's based on performance. That won't work. And you won't find any peace. If you think, well, salvation's by grace, but here, the only way I can enjoy God's blessings is to be obedient enough to, obedient enough to earn His favor. That will put you into bondage. And I want to show you something that I think will really help you if you struggle with that. The law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, and certainly you can all agree with that in your own life. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That is, sin hath reigned unto death. Even so might grace reign 
through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Here's what that's saying. That through the righteousness of Christ, through what he did that was right, due to the fact that he was righteous and there was no sin about him, and he was totally obedient to the law, and he fulfilled the righteousness of the law, that's why on your behalf or for your benefit, grace reigns through his righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. That is the righteousness of Jesus Christ will reign so much over your sins that ultimately it'll get you eternal life. It'll reign to the end and reign through eternity. It will always overrule and abound over your sin. And notice this next verse. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. You know, it'd be easy for someone to say, well, man, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. So it doesn't how matter how much I sin. Matter of fact, I can just enjoy it every day because no matter how much sin's in my life, grace is going to always overabound that. And so if I do more sin, there's going to be more grace. So the corrupt mind of men might say, let's just continue in sin that grace may abound. Not only does Paul say God forbid, but he explains it as well. He says, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein. Now what does that mean? Dead to sin. Well, it surely can't mean that I no longer have a desire for sin. Does that apply to anybody in the house? It's not, we're not dead in that sense that I no longer have any interest in sin. If you'll just go down to verse 7, it will define itself. For he that is dead is freed from sin. What that means is Jesus Christ freed you from the penalty of your sins and so you're dead in the sense that it no longer has control over you. You see, um, according to Romans 7, a man is bound uh, by the law to, or husband is bound by the law the wife is bound to her husband by the law as long as he liveth. But if he be dead, she is loose from that law. A lo you know, my marriage vows are not in effect if my wife is no longer living. I'm not under that anymore. Well, in like manner, you're dead to sin in the sense that it no longer determines your standing with God. It doesn't determine your your destiny when this life is over that is you're freed from it Jesus Christ the Bible says made us free from the law of sin and death so we're dead to sin notice 
in uh, verse 8 of Romans 6. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul says, here's your place, here's your standing, here, here is your position. He says, reckon this, understand this, that you're dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So he says, let not therefore sin reign in your mortal body. You see, to be dead to sin is defined here as being free from the penalty of sin. It doesn't mean you're dead to the desire for sin. Otherwise, he wouldn't command us in verse 11 or verse 12, let not sin reign in your mortal body that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof. So having stated this about the mercies of God, notice again in Romans 12, 1, Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. In other words, Paul is saying, when you consider the mercies of God, it is only reasonable. Well, I'd be foolish to think otherwise. Paul says, when you think about the mercies of God, as you think about what I tonight have showed you from the Bible about God's mercies and how that if it weren't for His mercies, we would be consumed. When you consider all that, can't you agree and say, it is only reasonable for me to present my body a living sacrifice. That doesn't mean that you necessarily are willing to be burned at the stake. I don't believe that's the main idea here. The idea is that my life and the way I live it in this mortal body is going to be lived in such a way that it's not my interests that are being served, it's not my lusts that are being fulfilled, but my life in this body is a sacrifice to glorify God. And that's just my reasonable service when I consider how merciful He's been to me. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.